Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the 5 by your bi-weekly source for rapid board game reviews that while they might skimp on time, refuse to compromise on quality. We've got a great show for you this week. Mason and Stephanie are here fresh from BGGCon where they were able to meet up with and hang out with playing some games with great podcast fans. And while their voices might be shot from the con, they still managed to record their thoughts on Word Slam and Dicey Peaks respectively. Fresh from far less exciting weekends in Durham, I'll be talking about Clank and Space from Renegade Games while Sarah talks about marrying Mr. Darcy. But first of all, we have Lindsay, ready to tell us all about Martin Wallace's Mythotopia. So sit back and enjoy the show. Hello, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to be telling you about my feelings towards Mythotopia, designed by Martin Wallace, published by Tree Frog Games, with artwork by Sanjana Bainath. Mythotopia is an unusual game, and it's a little bit of an unusual choice for me to discuss, because I normally like to talk about games I unashamedly love, and let's just say that I've had mixed feelings about this one. On the surface, it should be another perfect game for me, as an area control deck building game, my most favourite genres. Yet every time I've gone to play, I've never been too excited beforehand. In fact, a couple of times I've downright said, ugh. Yet every time I finish playing, I think, oh, I really enjoyed that actually. I want to play again. Mythtopia was purchased at a very low cost and it's the second in a trilogy of games. First is A Few Acres of Snow and this year A Handful of Stars. It's a trilogy of sorts because all three games are based around the same mechanics with a few variations and different themes. A Few Acres of Snow is War, A Handful of Stars is Space and Mythtopia is kind of a generic medieval type affair. In Mythtopia you use a deck of cards to place armies and invade different regions on the board using the cards for their icons or ability. You can purchase further fancy cards to build your deck and score for the regions you take as you go. There are lovely bonus points to be had with the victory condition cards and the VP tokens they provide. And once three of these are clear, the game ends. Mythtopia was only the second Wallace game I played and the first, Studying Emerald, wasn't my cup of tea at all. So I had a few reservations to begin with, which wasn't a great start. And I found that it didn't really click into place for me at all but it wasn't a big deal, it was only £12, it's not the end of the world. But recently I wanted to give it another try, as the first time I played, the outside factors I was experiencing at the time have also had an effect on my judgement somewhat. But I did have that familiar feeling once again of, there are 50 other games I could play right now, and this isn't the one I probably would choose. So I was pretty surprised that after a few rounds, my enjoyment level distinctly rose, and having played it a few more times, I think I figured out why. What I like about it is that it's very well designed. As with most deck builders, it can start a little slow, but for whatever reason, this seems to feel really sludgy in the beginning. But once you wade through the muddy waters a bit, it flows pretty damn well. And once you start strategizing where to place your armies, how to navigate yourself there, where to build, which avenue you wish to take to score the victory cards, it becomes rather exciting. Throw in the inevitable area control conflicts and it could turn into a pretty vicious battle. And these are the hallmarks of a very good game for me. I think the problems I have with it is that it doesn't have a very strong theme. And in a game that takes longer than an hour, for me personally, I do like to have an immersive theme. And Mythtopia is very intangible. It's medieval, I'm assuming, but there's nothing that particularly stands out to me as anything in particular. It just has some land and some tokens and cards, uh, uh, markets, alchemists, mills, and sometimes uh, dragons, which I actually really like playing with. But they could be dragons, they could be anything, it doesn't really matter. So it feels a little pasted on and doesn't get me engaged. More often than not, it doesn't matter to me about fancy artwork or it's dripping with theme, but Mythtopia really lacks a little something, I feel, in that department. Lastly, I can't stand the names of the areas. I stated this the other night before playing, when I was kind of huffing about how poor some of the name choices were. They're just really dull and murky and 
ooh sort of names that just don't make me very happy but despite these feels I still enjoy playing and if I didn't I probably would not have been incensed to discuss it today. As I mentioned earlier once you get past that muddy stage it's pretty smooth and rhythmic and you can get excited about the game itself despite the icky place names and the wishy-washy theme. As hand management and deck builders go it's really well done. I like that the deck doesn't get out of control huge and I like that as you progress the game evolves. It's also pretty replayable with the randomised victory cards and the upgraded cards there's always different objectives to meet and options to mold your deck and that really stops it becoming stale from game to game i like playing with the dragons because i enjoy the fact that they make areas more difficult to conquer so it becomes more challenging it also maybe runs a little long for me i feel this game played better if it were under 90 minutes but that's just me because once you approach the end of the game it does start to feel like the well is running dry a little but again this could just be the way i've played it so far it has made me want to get a handful of stars again i put this on my watch list at the start of the year decided against it and now i'm really up for it again i have a feeling it would improve on mythotopia and the theme which is sci-fi related sounds a bit more like my thing than something i could get into i especially like the sounds of the modular board as opposed to the static board and the cards of the characters and alien species would give it a more tangible feel for me i also think this is another aspect mythotopia lacks whereas in a few acres and a handful of stars you're playing as different factions in mythotopia you're the same and again it just doesn't grip me so check out the trilogy see which one might work for you and if thing doesn't mean diddly to you then get involved with Topia, and it's actually really cheap in the uk at the moment and maybe if i do take the plunge with a handful of stars i'll be comparing it in a future episode if you want to see and hear more from me you can visit my instagram and youtube channel shiny half meeples or pop on my blog www.shinyhalfmeeplesblog.wordpress.com or follow me on twitter capital s capital h meeples co bye for now It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That, of course, is the first line of Jane Austen's novel Pride and Prejudice. And the single-minded focus on marriage in that quote is the motivation that drives Marrying Mr. Darcy, a light card game designed by Erica Svano and published in 2014. In Marrying Mr. Darcy, each player takes on the role of one of the female characters in Pride and Prejudice. Like the novel on which it's based, the goal of Marrying Mr. Darcy is to marry advantageously. Marriage earns victory points at the end of the game, and each eligible bachelor is worth a different point value to each of the different ladies. This may sound complicated, but will be clear and intuitive to anyone who's read Pride and Prejudice. For instance, Mr. Collins is a terrible match for Lizzie Bennet, very few points, but an excellent match for Mary Bennet or Charlotte Lucas, just like in the novel. The game is divided into two phases, courtship and proposal. In the courtship phase, players take turns drawing event cards, which trigger events inspired by and sometimes directly based on events in Pride and Prejudice. Event cards might have you make yourself a new dress that outshines all the other ladies, or walk through the mud to take care of your sick sister, or go to a party. Some events have a major impact on the game, like giving the player an advantage during their proposal phase, or forcing the player to elope with Mr. Wickham. But most events simply allow the player to draw and play character cards. Character cards gain you points in either beauty, wit, reputation, or friendliness. They're worth victory points at the end of the game and may also be necessary to get the best marriage. For instance, Mr. Darcy will only marry a character with a lot of wit, while Mr. Bingley requires a lady with either high beauty or high friendliness. Most of marrying Mr. Darcy is spent drawing event cards and playing character cards, trying to build up a tableau that qualifies you for the marriage you want. There's a bit of take that, as some events let you force other players to discard character cards, 
And there are a few disastrous events that make you give up cards, sometimes many cards, from your own tableau. But overall, draw one character card, play one, is the most common action you take during the courtship phase. Last comes the proposal phase. One at a time, each player goes through all the eligible bachelors, starting with the one worth the fewest points to her. So for instance, Lizzie Bennett would start with Mr. Wickham, who is the worst marriage for her. She rolls a die to see if he proposes. If he does, she can choose to accept, at which point the game is over for her, her fiancé Wickham is removed from the pool of eligible bachelors, and the proposal phase moves to the next player. Or she can reject him and try again with the next bachelor. This is risky because players can't go back. If Lizzie rejects the odious men like Mr. Wickham and Mr. Collins because she's holding out for Mr. Darcy, but she fails to get a proposal from Darcy, she ends up an old maid. Seriously, there's a card labeled Old Maid for players who fail to win a proposal. This may all sound a bit retrograde, and it is, but its foundation in a beloved novel makes it work. Now, I am a huge fan of Jane Austen. I've read Pride and Prejudice so many times that I can recite lines from the book that go with event cards as they're drawn, but that level of devotion to the source material is in no way necessary to enjoy this game. In fact, one of the most fun game nights I've ever had was a group of six women playing Marrying Mr. Darcy. None of the others were Austin superfans like me, but everyone got into the spirit of the game, building lives for their characters from each event card, stealing their sister's bonnet, then arguing with a rival, then dancing with all the officers. We played it as a storytelling game, and I think that's how Marrying Mr. Darcy works best. I do have to say, while Marrying Mr. Darcy excels at storytelling, in terms of gameplay mechanisms, there's too much luck for me. You can spend the entire game building towards a proposal, be in really good shape, and then have one bad draw that obliterates your entire tableau. If it comes late in the game, there's no time to rebuild. You're just done. I don't recommend marrying Mr. Darcy if you're looking for something strategic, but I highly recommend it if you're looking for a fun evening of storytelling, especially with well-read friends. I also want to talk briefly about the female-focused nature of the game. I don't think marrying Mr. Darcy has no appeal to male players. I've played it with men who had fun just like the rest of us but in my experience, it does have extra appeal to women. It was the first game I ever played in which all playable characters were women. And it is still the only game I have ever played in which all the male characters were passive, the object of the game, the prize to be won. Which, I have to say, is incredibly refreshing. The reverse is so common, and by this point, so tedious. It's just great to have a game I can play with six women, and we'll all get to play a female character, and none of those characters look like Barbarella. Marrying Mr. Darcy is a gem of my collection. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not walking with my sisters to Meriton to visit the officers, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Word Slam. I typically don't cover new games, and I almost never cover new-to-me games, but sometimes something pops up that's so good I just have to tell you about it. Word Slam from the excellent German publisher Cosmos is, unsurprisingly, a party word game designed by Inca and Marcus Brand. If those names sound familiar, they should. The brands have won two Kinderspiel Awards for Village in 2012 and the Exit series in 2016. They also pioneered the Euro Roll and Write with St. Malo, which I also highly recommend. But Word Slam is something else altogether. It's in that category of games I can't believe didn't already exist, but I really wish I'd thought of first. It's a bit like real-time concept, but with single words on cards instead of pictures on a mat. In a six-player game, two teams of three face off. Two players from each team guess, and the third player gives clues to a secret word. This player is called the storyteller, but don't worry about that. 
The clue givers from both teams look at the word, and then they race to get their team to guess it. Word Slam gives each team four decks of small cards to use for clues. The giver is frantically sorting through these decks, trying to find the words they want. The beauty and the frustration in Word Slam is that the words you want aren't there. They do not exist in the decks. Uh, a quick example. The first secret word on my turn as giver was tornado. So I'm frantically searching through decks of nouns, verbs, adjectives, and prepositions trying to find words that would describe a tornado. Words that are not in the Word Slam decks. Weather, storm, spinning, rotation, destruction. I eventually got my team to guess tornado using something like, and I don't remember exactly, black, sky, water, bad, wind. Word Slam forces the same kind of reductive reasoning as concept, but adds the race element and deck searching of Dutch Blitz and the frantic shouting of Outburst. While you're searching the decks trying to find enough words to couple together some kind of clues that make sense, your teammates are constantly guessing, and usually worthlessly. Since I started with the word sky, my team got off on a tangent guessing different species of birds before I found wind. Because your team is listening to your opponent's guesses in real time as well, the other team's bad ideas and blind alleys can infect your group's guesses, making it even more difficult to steer them in the right direction. Because both teams are working from the same secret word, and two identical decks of word cards, it's still really helpful to keep one ear open for the other team's guesses. It's also key to get your team to understand the relationships between your word clues. If you are trying to get your team to guess the word coat, there's no card for warm, but you might put the words hot and cold on the rack, then move the card that says not back and forth to both of them. So, not hot, not cold. If you can get your team there, with the idea of warm, and then add the cards soft, material, for, on, man, you might be able to get your team to guess that it's a coat. We tried it at 5 player, which was also interesting, as I switched teams back and forth. Probably not ideal, but it works equally well as an activity with players unconcerned about winning. The 12 versus 12 game we played at our BGGCon 5 by meetup was absolutely stellar. It is the best large group game I have ever played. As long as all the guessers can see the cards, you could, in theory, play with any number of people. With two full sets, you could absolutely play four teams against each other, each of effectively infinite size. We bought our copy immediately after playing, direct from the Cosmos booth at BGGCon, and Meg and I will be playing it two players in activity in the same way we play two player taboo or password. I will also be taking it to all future family holidays and all work events. Guessing players can jump in and out of the game at will, especially if you're not too concerned who wins. But a big part of the appeal for me with Word Slam lies in its totally objective nature. There's a single right answer you're working toward, which makes it an actual game with an actual winner. People are, of course, free to shout out joke answers, which they do, but being funny doesn't help you win in any way, though it does break up some of the early round tension while the clue giver is searching for cards. Players quickly get very serious about winning. There are four different levels of difficulty, from easy to expert, and around 1,200 secret words total. With only 15 to 20 rounds per game, you're not in any danger of playing through them all anytime soon. I do have a couple of gripes, as always. The box here is sort of dumb. It's ticket-to-ride size, and it really doesn't need to be. It has a fancy blow-molded insert that I don't particularly care for and will probably just toss. It could have easily fit in a much smaller box, but as this is clearly aimed at the mass market, I do understand why Cosmos chose it. It's also a standard Cosmos box size that many of their other games come in, so I'm not too mad. The cards aren't linen finished, which I don't love, as they're definitely going to get very heavy wear since the entire game is just you sorting through the decks over and over. Now you could sleeve them, but with 210 mini euro cards, it's both a lot of work and it adds another $7 to $15 to the game depending on what quality of sleeve you buy and where you buy them. Moreover, after playing both a sleeved and unsleeved copy, the sleeved cards were a little difficult to handle and kept slipping out of my hand. So who should buy Word Slam? People who like word games. People who like party games. 
People who like race games. People who like being frustrated by not being able to use the words they want to. And people who want to shout, glass, mirror, windshield, card, TV, glass, glasses, beer glass, TV, uh, glasses, diamond, diamond, jewelry, necklace, TV, watch TV, TV watcher, game show, because you saw the words object and transparent. I give Word Slam 10 out of 10 object container for not bad funny material. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hello, Five by listeners. It's Ruth here, and this week I wanted to talk about a game that builds upon a game already reviewed by the Five by. Sarah talked about Clank back in episode 16, a fantasy deck builder about getting in and out of a dragon's lair without being caught. Clank was released in 2016, and a year later in 2017, Renegade Games released Clank in Space. The basic idea of Clank in Space is that a group of adventurers are sneaking onto the flagship owned by the evil Lord Eradicus. Each player aims to make their way through Eradicus Prime and reach the Command Core, where the Lord keeps his most valuable possessions. Their goal is to grab one of these precious artifacts and make it back to an escape pod without being knocked out in an attack by the increasingly angry Eradicus. Once all players have either escaped or been eliminated, those who survived determine who got out with the biggest haul. I'm not going to talk much about how Clank plays, so if you're not familiar with the game, I suggest pausing this and going back to episode 16 and listening to Sarah. But there are a few fairly significant changes in Clank and Space. The most obvious is the modular board, but there's also the hacking required to access artifacts, faction cards that can power each other up, some different rage track effects. So yeah, not just a quick retheme. The modular game board consists of the cargo bay where you enter and the command core which has the artifacts. In between these are three double-sided pieces that can be arranged however the players wish. These represent different modules from the ship. As players arrange these modules in various ways, it adds a lot of variety to set up and offsets the issue Sarah mentioned with Clank of players finding a familiar path once they get used to the maps and sticking to it. In addition, most rooms within the ship contain data ports, which a player can place one of their two data cubes on to gain half of the access code. Ports can only be used by a single player, and all give the players something in addition to hacking them. However, while some give credits or health, the easier reach ones tend to give clank. In order to reach the command core, players have to hack two ports in order to get a full access code, and players are required to perform the second hack in a different module from the first, forcing them to move around the ship a little bit, and again meaning they can't just pick one perfect direct path. Throughout the game, players add various allies to their decks, just as in Clank. But many of the allies that are found in space belong to one of three factions. Many of those faction cards have additional abilities that will only be active if the player plays another member of the same faction in the same turn. This makes player choices a little more interesting when decided what cards to buy from the adventure row. There are also other cards in the game with powers that take effect based upon the holder having a particular item in their possession, which can add incentive for players to detour from their path in order to pick up, say, a power crystal, because it's able to power up a number of the cards they've already obtained and lead to some bigger, more impressive turns. The final change I was going to talk about is the Rage Track. In Original Clank, the Rage Track only changed the number of cubes being pulled during an attack, Clank in space adds additional effects as Eradicus gets madder and reaches those final areas of the track. One simply blocks an easy access route, 
but three of the four spaces on the track have red cubes on them representing bounty hunters. And when the boss reaches them, those cubes also go into the bag. Pulling a red cube from the bag deals a single wound to every single player on the ship. And then, unlike every other cube in the game, the bounty hunters go back into the bag, ready to attack again. This seems to help the amount of damage being dealt to players build and escalate as the game progresses, and gives that nice manic feel to the end of the game as players rush for the escape pods under fire from Eraticus and his minions. While I love Clank in space, and I have zero regrets about adding it to my collection despite owning Clank, well that doesn't mean it's a perfect game. Presumably to be nice and spacey, the player colors are white, orange, blue, and purple. The blue and purple can be tricky to tell apart, and this only gets worse once Eraticus gets mad enough to release the bounty hunters. If the blue and purple are a little tricky to tell apart, the red and orange are far, far worse. I have pretty good color vision, but I struggle to distinguish red bounty hunters from orange player cubes when drawing from the bag, and that's just disappointing in an otherwise well-produced game. When awareness of accessibility issues in the hobby is being discussed more and more extensively, it's frustrating to see such a high-profile release fall down on it. Clank in Space is a phenomenal reimagining of an already great game. It's full of the same humor as its predecessor, with cards referencing every possible sci-fi property you can think of, all lovingly presented with great art and witty flavor text. It does play a little longer than the first game, but that's likely due to the need to obtain an access code preventing a player from just rushing straight to the first artifact and then running out, forcing everyone else to abandon their plans. If you haven't played Clank because it was just another fantasy game, but you prefer sci-fi games, or if you are interested in games that take deck building and build on the mechanic, then I highly recommend taking a look at Clank in Space. And until next time, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. It's no secret that I listen to a lot of podcasts. On the drive home today, one of the shows I was listening to was talking about mountains and mountain climbing and made a brief mention of the 1924 British expedition to reach the summit of Mount Everest, a dangerous journey that led to the disappearance of mountaineers George Mallory and Andrew Irvine, and the still unanswered question of if they ever made it to the summit or not. Since then, over 4,000 people have achieved what Mallory and Irvine dreamed to do, and in Dicey Peaks, you can live out your own elevated experience. In Dicey Peaks, designed by Scott Alms and published by Calliope Games, you are racing to be the first to make it to the top of a rather treacherous mountain. The board is made up of 21 hexagonal tiles that lead you ever skyward to your frigid finish line. At the start of the game, the tiles are shuffled and the needed number for each level are placed face down to hide the dangers or bonuses to be discovered along the way. Climbers start with a tank full of oxygen and a lot of determination, and the race begins. On your turn, you draft five dice of your choosing from the pile of 15 available dice, then roll and decide if you're wanting to move further up the mountain or if you're setting up camp and resting for a moment by setting aside the corresponding dice. You then set aside any dice you rolled that can hinder your journey and any remaining dice are returned to the pool. You can then choose to roll more dice and hope it helps your cause before you roll enough negative to end your turn, or you can opt to stop rolling 
and take the effects of the dice you set aside, pressing your luck in the most basic way. But this isn't a game where you can just go whole hog, even if the dice are in your favor. The 15 available dice are of three types. White dice have more pickaxe symbols, which allow you to move. Dark blue dice feature mostly tents, which you use to rest and regain oxygen. Light blue dice are balanced more in the middle. In order to climb, not only do you need the dice to do so, but you'll end up spending oxygen from your tank. You roll too many axes and find yourself out of oxygen, you've busted and that's a waste of turn. So why not just stock up on oxygen at the start and sprint your way to victory? Because hyperventilation is a thing. You know, science. Your oxygen tank can only be filled so full, but it'll only take you so far. And if that wasn't enough to think about during your snowy journey, Yetis you roll can ruin a perfectly good rest and help your competing climbers who might have been lagging behind by scaring them enough to make an adrenaline-fueled push onto the next tile. So you've finally reached the top, but that doesn't mean you've won. You have to also flip over one of the three tiles at the top, hoping to find the one with the red flag. If you do and you have at least a little bit of oxygen left, you win. You don't find it? Well, you've made it a bit easier for your fellow climbers if they can reach that peak before your turn comes around again. There's a lot going on in this mostly simple game. From the start of your turn when you choose your starting dice, on through to your final stop, you are making choices in a way I don't often see in a game with so much dice rolling. Play is quick, set up pretty simple. In spite of a few ambiguous rules in the book that caused some moments of pause, I played my first game from opening the box to declaring a winner in just about 25 minutes. The game box says it plays two to six players. I have yet to play it with such a high number, but I played it both as a two player and as a four player. And while both were equally fun, a two player game feels much more like a mad scramble where my recent four player game required a bit more careful movement and oxygen management since that ever-present Yeti could totally undo a previously built large lead. The components are great, the tiles hefty, and plastic oxygen tanks and climbers track your levels and your ascent, respectively. The custom frosted dice add to the theme perfectly. I like the game. I'm eager to play it and teach it. It is, however, not without some downsides. The tiles themselves are labeled 3, 4, 5, and 6, indicating which row and how many tiles from that stack should be placed. This made what could have been a much more replayable game a bit limiting in its tile randomization. Also, now that I've played it as four-player, I'm really hesitant to play it with five or six. Those Yeti die triggering a one-space jump for any climber who is behind you really closes the gap and closes it quick especially on a board that's only 21 spaces big. I can't imagine a five or six player game lasting long enough to allow people to get into a groove or really feel in control of their gameplay. But as a two or three player game, especially with an MSRP of $30, Dicey Peaks is a great quick game that could be a strong go-to when looking for a new gateway. For the Five by, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, Stay playful. Thank you for listening to the Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at Five By Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Five By Games. 
Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The 5 By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.